Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all of the issues affecting the game we love. I'm Ian McGarry and with me, of course, is Duncan Castles. We've got a news pack show for you today. We hope you enjoyed uh, this week's podcast that we delivered to you already, including that exclusive interview with Uwe Hunemeyer on what it's like playing in the Bundesliga. Well, hallelujah. Since then, Project Restart has come up with a start date. June 17th, matches will return in the Premier League. Before we go on to discussing the ins and outs and logistics of that, we're going to discuss, Duncan, the um, interest of Manchester City in Napoli's international Caldo Kilabali, a player who has long been cherished by many clubs, both in Europe and in England. It's our information that City have lodged a, a note of interest with Aurelio De Laurentiis, the, pre- the president of Napoli. Uh, it's also understanding that while not willing to pay the players' get-out clause in the current and, of course, reduced financial climate that we have um, during this global pandemic, City are willing to pay a pretty penny for a player who is um, universally recognised as uh, experienced, very, very efficient in the way he plays, and also someone who uh, can be relied upon to hit the ground running and be at the very top of his game should he move away from the Serie A club. Also, uh, we have to ask the question, uh, and not for the first time on this podcast, what does this mean for John Stones and his future? I guess, um, Duncan, not a surprise that City would be interested in Koulibaly. Um, Aurelio Capaldi told the podcast earlier this year that he expected the player to leave uh, Napoli because they want to cash in. Is he a good fit for Manchester City? Well, as Aurelio told us in that podcast, he, this has not been a good season for Koulibaly and um, there's a sense that Napoli want to sell. Uh, they feel they've, they've held him for too long. He wants to, to change um, employer and, and potentially move to a different country. So there, I think there's an element of risk in, in this that there wouldn't appear to have been if we were talking about Koulibaly a, a year ago when he was pretty much the, the top target on the market but on the other hand there's also an an element of opportunity in that Napoli are ready to do business if the money is right for them and he's not a player that um, they insisted on retaining basically because Carlo Ancelotti wanted him kept uh, in the squad and wanted to build a, a potential title winning team around him which of course did not happen um no secret that Manchester City are unhappy with their centre-backs, particularly Pep Guardiola. I think you can basically say there is just one centre-back in his squad that he trusts, Emeric Laporte, who um, has been injured for a long period of the season. Um, so he's had two uh, fairly significant uh, injury breaks this season. Um, Koulibaly is right-footed, so you'd be able to restore that right-foot-left-foot partnership with Laporte obviously being the left-sided centre-back in the pair. He's a very physical player, so you'd be reinstating some of the, that uh, 
physicality and aggression that they lost when Vance and company decided to leave um, to go uh, back to Belgian football and, and take on a, um, a player coaching role at Anderlecht. And interestingly, um, Anderlecht have, have uh, improved company's conditions there in the past week. Um, and uh, he has bought shares in the club um, amid suggestions that uh, he had a, a, an offer to go back to Manchester City as Pep Guardiola's assistant. Um, so you wonder whether that, if that offer was the case, whether there was actually also an inquiry about him coming back as a, as a player um, assistant coach. That would be a, at least a partial solution to Manchester City's defensive problems and they never wanted to lose company in the first place. You're right, John Stones has fallen heavily out of favour with the manager over his performances and also over his behaviour away from the football pitch, lack of focus on the game, um, question marks about his private life um, that people have um, argued have detracted from his abilities on the, on the field. Um, City wanted to do something significant in that area last summer. What's happened during the, the, the current season has demonstrated they should have done something and, and it makes it more of a priority. Um, they, I think, will, will have significant competition from Kulabai. Other Premier League clubs will be looking at, at that opportunity. Uh, and as with just about everyone going into this market, the question marks are over how much finance you are able to put into a deal like that. Whether you can provide the salary, and Kulabai is very well paid at Napoli, got significant pay rise there um, because of his importance to Ancelotti and De, De Laurentiis whether you can put up a significant enough salary to um, satisfy the players' demands. It's um, this coming transfer market is going to be very different from anything we've experienced for a long time because the baselines have changed. And I've had people calling me in the past week to ask what, uh, what I felt the degree of difference would be in um, player salary uh, payments um, so how much the, a typical uh, Premier League club would be reducing their average offer to a new player and how much they'd be reducing offers to, to managers as a result of um, the, the COVID pandemic and the financial damage it's done. And, and I think you can take from that that there's a bit of a waiting game going on here. It's not just the clubs waiting to see how much revenue they, they can save by trying to finish the Premier League. Um, and, and trying to calculate how much revenue next season is going to cost them, whether it's played behind closed doors or at what stage they get back to playing with fans again. It's also trying to assess what the other clubs are going to do and how much they're going to cut their budgets so that they themselves don't get caught out when trying to do the, the deals that are of most importance to them. I think you're right, Doug. I mean, with City, it has been a problematic position uh, over the course of this season, and indeed will probably continue to be um, for the last 10 games of the season, as they have 10, not nine, still to play. Uh, the fact that they've made a move for Koulibaly now on the basis that uh, they want to make sure that they have in place uh, the right replacements and uh, augmentations for the 2021 season is um, 
a sign, of course, of a club who uh, has won Premier League titles and now finds themselves 25 points behind Liverpool uh, in this one. So um, an interesting development that uh, Pep Guardiola has um, made it one of his primary tasks to ensure that he uh, strengthens in a half position. Speaking of strengthening, uh, lots of chat, Duncan, about Newcastle United, of course, something we discuss almost each of our podcasts at the moment with regards to recruitment and managers. We've had lots of talk about um, the club, uh, new prospective owners, trying to uh, lure Mitsu Pochettino to that job. Uh, you've been steadfast in your opinion that Steve Bruce will be allowed to see out at least the final games of this season, which we now know, with all things being equal, will go ahead. Also, huge amounts of um, talk about Filippi Coutinho and, of course, the fact that Coutinho doesn't seem to be able to find uh, one of the clubs who you would expect to um, employ his services uh, actually interested in making that transfer happen. And now Newcastle are mentioned, and of course, up and coming uh, in terms of the new investment. Uh, would you want to go there as the as, as Newcastle's Messi, almost the star player, undoubted, and the flair player, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But your information contradicts that at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah, look, I think what you're seeing is something that we see a lot in football journalism it's if you want to uh, generate a story and uh, you want to add in clubs who may be interested in a player you look to the clubs that have got big money and and would seem like credible um, candidates to buy a player in Newcastle United because um, they have a proposal to be bought by Saudi Arabia state now enter that scenario so they are a club to be linked with and and a club that agents are calling uh, to to offer them players, not always their own players. Uh, this is a, a, an important part of the agency world is that agents who do not have a relationship with an individual player will call a club up to ask if they would be interested in that player, um, try sometimes to secure a mandate from that club um, to do the deal with that player and then go to the player's actual agent and say, well, I have an offer for you from, for example, Newcastle United. Um, let's get together and we'll share the commission. Um, there's lots of that going on, I'm told, by uh, the group who are uh, trying to buy Newcastle United and are waiting on the Premier League to decide if they will give them approval or not. Their position is that they are not op operating or working on player deals at present. Um, in fact, they, the only um, significant work they tell me they're doing in terms of the Newcastle United squad at present is to decide or to discuss who of their um, expiring contracts should be renewed. And, and interestingly, they say, even though that internal discussion is going on, they don't want to make a final decision on any of those players until they've spoken to Steve Bruce, um, which again, makes sense given that the strategy is to retain Bruce at least until the end of the season and also makes very um, good sense in that if you want to talk 
and make a decision about whether a player should be retained, one of the most important individuals to speak to is the manager who's been working with him for the last season. So they want to um, take Bruce's uh, assessment of the player into account before deciding what to do with the players whose contracts need to be renewed or if they decide to allow them to become free agents. Um, I think all of that bodes well for Steve Bruce in that he's seen as important and he's seen um, as a figure who, who will be involved at, at least until the end of, uh, of this Premier League season. Um, interestingly, they haven't, they tell me, spoken directly to Steve Bruce. And that, I believe, is because Mike Ashley has not given them permission to speak to Steve Bruce. Um, I don't think that should be taken as an indication that there's any kind of reluctance on um, Mike Ashley's part to sell. The information is that the deal is there. Um, he cannot renege, cannot back out of this deal. Um, if the Premier League give approval, he has to go through with it. But I think also if you are the owner of a club and there is doubt whether a takeover will be approved, then it's, it's sensible to not let your current manager speak to people who do not actually have control of the club at present. I could see other owners in similar situations doing the same thing. When it comes to managers, I've asked specifically about Maurizio Pochettino and about other individuals. The answer has always been the same and was the same again this week. No conversations with managers, no conversations with agents about managers. We have representatives of very big name managers calling us um, to try and get those discussions going. We are not engaging in them because we don't own the club yet. And the strategy is retain Steve Bruce. And if Steve Bruce does well, um, Steve Bruce has the potential to remain as manager into next season. I think you should add this into the, the equation here is if this takeover had gone through in normal circumstances, that strategy of keeping Steve Bruce to the end of the season would actually be easier to apply because you could, you could have your run until May. Um, obviously, Newcastle are not going to be relegated, so it's quite safe to, to keep him in place. Um, if you decide then a change is required, it gives you quite a lengthy period of time to bring the new man in. In this coronavirus um, pandemic project restart environment, it's a different story. Bruce, if the buyers are good, are good to their word and they get the club, um, he stays in place until the end of the of the project restart, which we think would get him till about August. Um, and you can expect, although no date is penciled in for this, that the start of the 2021 season is going to have to be not long after that. The Premier League can't afford to let it run and run and run because there are just too many games to be played. Um, you can't wait until October to start the 2021 season. Um, therefore, from Newcastle's perspective, if they do want to change at the end of the season, they're going to have a very limited window in which to do that and get the new, give the new man uh, opportunity to bed in with the players, do the, the things that most managers want to do and most managers prefer to join a club um, in, at the end of a season going into a new season because it gives them the proper preparation time and gives them they feel the best chance to succeed in the job. So I think the pandemic's also helping Steve Bruce here. I'm not saying it's a guarantee he's safe. Um, that's definitely 
not what I'm hearing from the buyers. But I think when you look at the practicalities of the situation, that swift turnover from this season into next season, if they are being accurate, that they're not having these conversations with managers or agents, it's true, then it's really going to be quite hard for them to change um, ahead of the 2021 season. So for Newcastle United and Coutinho, Reid, um, Gaetan and Manchester United, and Nico Gaetan Ruse could become the Filippo Coutinho Ruse, uh, link him with the big club, watch him get a new contract and of course uh, wonder why you can't see stats for the last six years playing for Manchester United because he never did. I, to, to, to be honest, Ian, I haven't actually specifically asked about Coutinho um, and part of the reason I haven't asked is when, when I've talked to them about their strategy and players, they always emphasise that they're going to work with an FFP, that it is they want to be surgical in their transfer dealing. Uh, they want to get value out of the market. They don't want to do the kind of things that other um, affluent buyers of Premier League clubs have done. And if you look at Philip, the idea of Philip Coutinho to Newcastle United, this is one of the highest wages in world football, still has a significant residual transfer value, has failed at Barcelona, not done enough at Bayern Munich for them to say, yes, we're definitely going to exercise the option. It looks like the kind of mistake deal that these big clubs would do, and it just doesn't fit with what they're telling me their strategy will be. Um, therefore, I'd, I would be extremely surprised if they if they tried to get involved in that deal. In which case, let's change Nico Gaetan to Hannes Rodriguez. <laughs> very, very similar career pattern, albeit the, the other side of the two big clubs in Spain. We have finally have a decision from the Premier League on Project Restart, as we have widely predicted on the transfer window. Uh, it should begin on Wednesday, June 17th with uh, two big games, Aston Villa, Sheffield United. Massive game for Aston Villa, of course, are currently in the relegation zone. And Manchester City will play Arsenal on that Wednesday. There, uh, after that, then they plan to play all 10 fixtures uh, every weekend over the course of Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday. One game on Friday and Monday each. Four games in between on the two weekend days. Stagger kickoff times, everything live. Now, you think, given how long we've waited for this, there'd be streamers and party poppers, and who knows, even an eight o'clock clapping uh, one night as well to say, hurrah, football's back. But there are so many unanswered questions, Duncan, as well, surrounding um, the resumption of football in the UK and specifically in the Premier League. We brought one of those up on Wednesday's podcast this week when we told uh, you listeners that there was no contingency plan should there be a mass infection at one club of the COVID virus. Uh, and we now um, understand that there's also no contingency plan uh, with regards to what would happen if even the league does restart but then is forced to close down again, how they would decide on relegation and European places. So, for a matter of fact, even though uh, the league looks to be and is planned to end the way that it should do, i.e. by every game being played, if anything 
in any circumstance, and let's face it, in the uncertainty of the pandemic world, those things um, certainly you know, should not be discounted. That uh, no points per game, for instance, uh, resolution has been agreed, and certainly no obvious calculation which will decide relegation in European places either. Duncan, does this all feel a little bit rushed, given that you know we have lots of safety caveats, but it seems to be no caveats in terms of, OK, what happens if we have to have a plan B and we can't finish the season? Look, there's no doubt the Premier League's made significant progress here. They have managed to convince the players that contact training is safe and, and uh, get the players to agree to that, and, and they are starting to contact train now and that you know that's a that's a major advance over even a week ago when you had um you know significant players at clubs saying they were not going to go back to non-contact training troy dini being a one of the, the most notable examples of this because they were not convinced about the safety so they, they they've now got the players in the main on board they've got all 20 clubs to vote for um, contact training and to um, come up with a schedule uh, and to agree um, to attempt to finish the league. But as you say, I think it's it's a little bit early to say that everything is resolved because those key subject matters, the things that we've been telling you have been causing problems in the negotiations over this restart process all along, which are relegation does it actually happen there's still clubs who are arguing that it is unfair um, to relegate in these circumstances because um, you're playing you're taking away home advantage we had um on wednesday's podcast very explicitly saying that basically home home advantage goes when you play ghost games um, and uh, he was saying you, you, we're just incapable of beating some of the better teams because the, the pressure our, our um, supporters are able to put on them and our ground is gone, therefore their um, superior quality wins out. And, and the statistics from the Bundesliga so far absolutely back that up in that um, there hasn't been many home wins. There's been a lot more away wins than usual. Um, you are seeing the stronger teams uh, coming out on top on a very consistent basis, and it, and it fits with data that, that we talked about in the podcast before the Bundesliga went back, which is that over the history of closed-door games in football, um, an analysis of those shows that home advantage is basically stripped away by, by closed-door games. So you've got that integrity issue um, at that at the heart of the discussion. We also see now that the, because of, um, I think, justifiable concerns that the individual supporters will gather outside the grounds for key matches, such as the Liverpool Derby, um, Derby matches in London, um, any game where there's a possibility of Liverpool winning the league. Um, Manchester United, Sheffield United, which is very important for Champions League qualification. The, the idea is that those games should be played at neutral venues and the majority of the, the rest of the games played um, as scheduled home and away. So, so again, 
you know, that that's clearly a problem with the integrity of the league. I think Manchester United would be entitled to say this match against Sheffield United is extremely important in determining um, Champions League position and you're taking our home advantage away even to the extent of playing in the stadium we're used to and, and putting us in a, a neutral venue. Um, there all is, as you say, that decision over if the league does not complete. And I think it is a real possibility for reasons we, we can go on to discuss. Um, even after restart, what methodology do you use to decide the positions? That hasn't been determined yet. There's a proposal that it will be what, what they call unweighted points per game. So not taking in, into account where you'd won your points, um, your your home average and your away average, and trying to um, calculate and uh, and accommodate for um, teams who've had um, fewer away games um, to to make the the points per game uh, calculation fairer. The the proposal is they just go for straight unweighted points per game to decide the final table. But I. I'll be surprised if all 20 clubs agree to that, put it that way, because uh, this gets to the heart of the matter, which is the teams that are in danger of relegation um, will lose more money from uh, dropping out of the Premier League than they would from not completing the season. And that decision on on how the, the league is decided, um, should they not complete, could result it could potentially result in the in being the, the way the uh, relegation is determined after just one round of matches. We might have a circumstance in which we get one round of matches, a project restart, um, and infections are on the rise, which they already are in the UK as um, lockdown is is uh, is being relaxed. Um, or we have a, a major outbreak of infections in, in a particular club, which stops that team from playing for a couple of weeks. Because although, the, as we, we told you on Wednesday, there's no protocol for that, it's hard to see what the league will be able to do other than say, if you have four or five key players um, coming down ill in one team, that that team gets to stop playing for two weeks. And, uh, and and has to quarantine and self-isolate until um, they are demonstrated to be COVID-free. Um, and as we've talked a couple of times in the podcast, the, the testing regime that's being used um, in the Premier League only gives you results um, in a 48-hour period. It takes up to 48 hours to give results in contrast to what's being used in the Bundesliga, as Uwe Hunemeyer told us, they get tested and they get the results the same day. So that, that period um, when after you discover a player has COVID um, in which they're able to mingle, um, train or play against uh, opponents is far greater reduction in that in Germany than there is under the Project Restart Protocol. So it looks rosy at the moment. Um, certainly the Premier League are, are showing effort and they are putting themselves in a position where they can finish earlier than, than we expected and also satisfy um, the television broadcasters and, and reduce that £340 million rebate that they um, they believe they'll have to pay if they don't uh, complete the season. 
Um, but I think there are a lot more hurdles um, to to be jumped yet, both within the league itself in terms of those political negotiations over over how you finish, if how you decide positions if you don't complete the the schedule, and also in just the country itself and and the the risk of an infection um, getting into one of the club training grounds and spreading amongst um, a team and uh, and taking that club out of action for uh, what should really be a 14-day period. And a 14-day period under this new Premier League schedule is uh, uh, three, if not four, matches. And just to highlight the difficulties of this in terms of the non-agreement of contingency, Duncan, I was told that during the meeting of Premier League stakeholders on Thursday, uh, two clubs in the bottom six who agreed to vote on the 17th June restart did make it clear that if this competition was subsequently suspended for the kind of incident that you have spoken about, i.e. Uh, mass infection of one or more than one club uh, where fixtures have to be postponed, etc., etc., then, and I quote, all bets are off. <laughs> so uh, it shows you there is still a lot of uncertainty and even dissent with regards to um, how this is going to work or not work. seems to me like the Premier League are... It's a wing and a prayer type scenario. They have been given authorization by the medical experts and the government to resume contact training. Uh, they've seen the experiment of um, restart work in the Bundesliga. Uh, in the next two weeks, we'll see it happen in Spain. And then in the same weekend of June 20th, when the majority of Premier League games got underway, Serie A is also due to resume. Kind of like herd immunity, except herd mentality, um, as far as football's concerned, but no actual focused intelligence or, uh, I, I believe, proper planning either. They've planned as much as they can, but decided that they wanted to go ahead regardless. So it will be very interesting to see how that turns out. You just, you've got to look at, someone pointed out that uh, the league is coming back on June the 8th. Um, uh, it, the, the death numbers in Spain are are less than 10% per day of the death numbers in the, in the UK at present. Uh, if you look at the latest data, um, in England, it's reporting a rise in hospital and admissions and a, and a rise in intensive care admissions for new COVID cases uh, in the last week. Um, just today, the government wanted to reduce the alert level for coronavirus in the UK to three. Um, the scientific uh, advisory body they use, the, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, said no, refused to do that. So they, they didn't want the alert level brought down to three, which um, would indicate that we'd moved away from what they, they term high transmission levels, which I, which I can understand why the scientists have said no to, because transmission levels are still significant. Government's going ahead with uh, relaxing the lockdown anyway. The, the, you know, the implication, the, the common sense um, deduction from that is that we will see those infections increase. 
um, and we will will see ICU admissions increase um, over the next couple of weeks. The relaxation of the lockdown will accelerate that. So that bubble that we're trying to put football in to protect the players, um, the the external world is going to become a more dangerous place, and it only takes one infection from that external world to leak into a club and get spread around the club, and and there is a significant problem again. On the basis, Duncan, of day-to-day preparation, you and I have both been speaking to players who have been involved in non-contact football. Uh, today's the first day for many when they're involved in contact training, um, but not full-scale uh, training games, which would be, of course, be 11 versus 11. And I believe that you were speaking to um, a very experienced fitness coach just a couple of days ago whom you asked how would he approach re, uh, not so retraining, but certainly the resumption of training for players who've been doing mostly running and weights for the last 67 days, and how would he go about getting them match fit in a, what is effectively a very short space of time and got quite an interesting answer as well. Yeah, it's just an interesting conversation to have because this is a guy who's very much at the forefront of, of fitness training for football. And it, I just wanted to know what how he thought the best way to handle a situation, which is unprecedented, would be because you, you have the players stopping playing since March. Um, they haven't been able to train in groups until this last week. When they were training in groups, they're, they're training... Um, you know, groups of five with social distancing, with as you you've told us on the podcast, players complaining about the the intensity of the work, and some of them saying they could get a better workout in their their back garden by themselves. They have been doing fitness work at home. We've seen the the Zoom session, um, fitness regimes that most of the clubs have have uh, engaged in. They've had their diet monitored, etc. Um, but then you want to bring them back. Um, with those limitations on training that have been placed on them, um, with the absence of uh, medical assistance, with the absence of massages, um, not being able to eat at the training ground, all the things that, that Premier League uses to maximise performance from players. And so the question was, how, how do you handle that? What do you do? And uh, and his answer was, look, you need to get them playing football as quickly as possible that work that they've been doing by themselves, um, weights work and running work, is the wrong kind of training for football. In many cases, it will actually be detrimental. They'll have adapted their body physically to doing things that uh, reduce their capacity to perform in the football field. For example, in Serie A, uh, players tend to do a lot of running work and they don't uh, do as much uh, football-specific work. And what that gives the players is stamina and uh, allows them kind of to lengthen their careers. But what they do is they lose pace. They lose um, the fast twitch muscle fibers in their legs um, and therefore they can't... Uh, respond as quickly on the field as they need to do to be competitive at, at Champions League level, um, at the top level of the game. And, and I think this is a similar process and you've got a sustained period of time in which the players have been kept away from the football pitch and their bodies 
adapt to other kinds of fitness and lose their adaptation to the game. So he was saying that you need them to be playing, you need them to be tackling each other, you need them to be falling over, you need them to be twisting their bodies um, and turning and doing the things that are involved in playing football. The best way to get yourself fit for football is to play football. Um, and you know, I said, so how long do you need then? If, you, if you're in this circumstance, how long do you need to get them to a safe level? And he said, safety, 15 days um, for some of them. Uh, to get their bodies strong enough um, to reduce injury risk. But performance level, uh, that will depend. It'll be longer. It will depend on what kind of training you can do, um, how free you are to, to, to get uh, involved in contact training because there are limitations being placed in this by the Premier League at present, whether they remain in place. Once they get back to training, I have question marks about, but there are limitations over pressing strategies, tackling, surrounding opponents, etc. But you need as much of that as possible for as long as possible to get them back to performance level. And and I said, look, you know, a lot of the footballers are concerned uh, about the risk of injury and about the risk of this training regime. And he said that they are right to be concerned. They're right to be scared. Um, and and they should be concerned not just about the virus, they should be concerned about um, injury and about the level of performance when they come back because this is, it's very difficult to do this properly. You'll get um, the fitness experts at clubs who rely on GPS data and uh, prescribe um muscle conditioning work and weights work, they'll tell you that the players are fit because of the programs they've put them through while they've been unable to play football. But when it comes down to the reality of it, put them on the football pitch, they are not going to be fit for football at present. And you've seen that in the Bundesliga. You see the, the number of muscular injuries that happened in the first round of games. That's a direct result of bringing players back to a sport after a long break using different training regimes not actually playing the game. Well, I spoke to one Premier League coach yesterday, Duncan, who would definitely agree with you and the person you spoke to on that. Uh, he said to me that um, one of the things players have to get used to in terms of their bodies and physical contact is not just the stresses and strains of playing against other professional elite athletes again. It's even just things like falling and rolling when they've been tackled because the muscles that they use to protect themselves from injury, which are so um, based on instinct normally in any given season, have effectively gone to sleep. And they need to regain that muscle memory uh, by um, being involved in contact and physicality and even you know when to... Uh, get out of the way of a tackle, so therefore take the tumble uh, when jumping for headers, whether it be attacking or defensive, and the way that you land. All those things almost, it's not they have to be retaught but or relearned, but they just have to come back into your consciousness with regards to how to keep yourself safe from injury. And this obviously in terms of a season and the way it's been interrupted in such an unusual and unique way, uh, something that basically football players have not been used to. And therefore, there's a need for them to uh, regain that sense of awareness within themselves. 
just on the very basic things that they normally do as sheer natural ability stroke instinct. So it will be um, something that obviously coaches, players themselves are all very aware of and need to be aware of when it comes back to the point of resumption on June 17th. We will end today's podcast, not with a donkey, because that was a spectacular one. And thank you all for your um, responses to it on Wednesdays, uh, after Wednesday's pod. But with hero and villain uh, today, um, Duncan, uh, well, being the tradition again, I'm going to ask you to do both hero and villain today, because um, I think you've got two very good um, examples for us. Um, well, I'll leave you to do the hero of... Gotta give you give you some work to do on the podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm quite quite insulted now. <laughs> All right, well you do villain then. <laughs> well, the the villain um, is something that's come up again in conversations this week. It's um, I think UEFA um, deserve a, a villain award at present because there is major concern in in a lot of clubs. Um, across Europe who are getting their domestic league going again or trying to finish the domestic league and um, they have no idea what they have to reschedule for for next season from UEFA club competitions. Now, you, you, we tend to think of Europa League, uh, Champions League as competitions that, that start in earnest um, at the end of August, so therefore there should be significant time. Actually, if you look at the Europa League in particular, that started in the last season. Um, the first round of qualifying games started on 27th of June. So that's less than a month from um, the, the current date. If you are a club in um, Sweden, Scotland, Norway, Romania, um, Israel, these kind of countries, and you are in the first qualifying round of the Europa League, at present you have no idea whether that competition is even going to exist uh, next season. The, the, the assumption it's going to exist, but there are question marks over whether they do the pre-qualifying rounds, whether they exclude these countries and teams. But no guidance, I'm told, from UF on this. No decision. Therefore, how do you build your, your pre-season? How do you build your recruitment? Um, how do you plan uh, for something you've earned on your performances from the, the previous season? And I I do have a bit of sympathy with UEFA here and that this is a very difficult problem to solve because we're not just talking about movement and health within a country. We're, we're talking about cross-border travel and we would need cross-border travel across all the European nations to go back to normal Europa League. But I think that, that these countries don't have any guidance at this stage is uh, a major problem both for the, for the countries, the clubs involved, and I think also for UEFA in terms of uh, how they're going to get something approaching a normal uh, European club competition season for 2021 season. I'd say UEFA as villains is, is never a bad fit, Duncan. Um, I'm actually going to go hero here. Um, I'm going to go retro, retro hero. So is that ret hero, maybe? Rare hero? <laughs> um Nottingham Forest, 40 years ago yesterday, since they won their second consecutive European Cup under the great Brian Clough. Um, wonderful team of players. And I say team because that's what Clough built. There was no individual superstars 
in that team. Um, and of course, we had some serious Celtic influence as well uh, in that particular group of players. But to win it not once but twice um, in the circumstances was really uh, immense and one of probably my first own memories of European Cup football uh, when they won the European Cup uh, was tremendous. So I'm going to give it to Nottingham Forest as heroes uh, for this particular week. Now, if you want to continue the debate with us, please do, and you know that we love to do that. And uh, some of you have been uh, very, very fulsome in your praise. Some of you have been naughty in your criticism, but that's okay. We take both on one on the cheek and one on the other one. Um, you'll get us on our social media channels. That's our transfer podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. At Duncan Castles, at GarboSG, our individual handles on Twitter. If you like what you hear, uh, please pop onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. You know what happens next. The community grows, and the debate gets bigger, and we all get much more enjoyment out of it. For now, it's just left for me to say stay safe and be well, and we will see you through the transfer window next week. Thanks for listening. 